Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if this is your first time ever hearing the show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are. And we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this show, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by you, the folks who listen. So be a part of the podcast and tell us about the person who comes to your mind when we say that. Email us with your nominations and story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today on the show, we are actually bringing you a Teacher's Lounge classic. We are re-releasing my chat from a few years back with Chicago Public Schools teacher Jay Rehack. If you're newer to the show, you probably haven't heard it, but it's a great one. He and his students at Whitney Young High School have written over a dozen books together. Yeah, Jay helped pioneer this idea of class-sourced novels, the first of which was published in 2014. It was the first of its kind, and it was called 30 Days of Empathy. The stories, based on the real lives of his students, were poignant and, and also kind of scary for Jay. You get to tell these stories, and you're like, oh, it's small, I can't believe you're even, you even showed up to class today. I mean, that, I started just admiring people for, you know, showing up. We talked about why he says empathy is his life's mission, his other books, and much, much more. And this may be a throwback episode, but we've got new stories coming your way, too. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't you worry. Okay, before we get to Jay, we have another story we want to share. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker just signed a nearly $47 billion budget, but how does it affect education, specifically Illinois universities who have been hit so hard by budgets in the past? Well, it does include a substantial increase to the Monetary Award Program, or MAP grants, and I sat down with Mike Abrahamson, Policy Manager at the Partnership for College Completion, to talk about what it means for higher ed. What were some of your biggest takeaways for what this means for higher ed and specifically, you know, for students in Illinois? It sends a message to the state that we're supporting students from low income backgrounds and being able to access, persist and complete college. Most specifically, I think the $122 million increase for MAP is going to serve tens of thousands of additional students. And it's going to start us down this path to increasing award amounts as well. They can now award up to, I think it's 50% of public university tuition, which is a significant increase from, I believe, 38%. I mean, just like how substantial is it, especially compared to like the budgets that we've had over the past couple of years? Extremely impactful. It aligns with the promise that we had towards $600 million in MAP at this point. And it will have a significant impact on students being able to afford college. But also beyond that, I think like it also sends a message to students, right? I think the unsure nature of funding over the last 10 years at least have really hurt us in Illinois. And it contributes to the declining enrollments that we've seen. We have tens of thousands of fewer students than we had in Illinois 10 years ago. Okay, so we mentioned the increase to MAP grants. I want to touch on a couple of the other big points from that. There was the 5% increase to universities and community colleges operation, the budget, just 5% flat, right? Yes. And that too, I would say is a step forward, right? Right now we're figuring out how as a state, we can have a system that more adequately, equitably, and stably funds our universities. And this continues to support our college and universities as we figure out that system. 
There's increases to things like adult education, career and technical scholarships for minority teacher candidates. I think that the minority teachers for Illinois scholarship, that $2.3 million increase is definitely important to note. Okay, so let's get to what we've been like hinting around before, which is that, you know, in 2020, the Partnership for College Completion, you guys released a report saying that Illinois needs to change the way that it funds higher ed. And now it looks like Illinois is actually on the path to potentially doing that. Basically, in Illinois right now, we're one of few states that for the vast majority, I think 99.5% of our funding is given out based heavily on how we gave it out last year, not necessarily on a system that considers what students adequately need. How can we turn this system from being one of the few in the country that really doesn't have much of a system behind it to potentially leading the country in terms of equity? Is there anything about this conversation we're having about the budget and the impact it has on students, anything about this whole conversation that you think is more important than people might realize if they're just skimming a headline about the budget? I think that costs in higher education uh, are a difficult problem to grapple with, right? Because students pay for part of it, the state pays for, for part of it, and federal funds are in play as well. And that difficulty has, I think, made funding more scarce in a lot of states, and, and I think especially in Illinois over the last 20 years. But I think that the evidence all points to reinvesting in higher education. It, it's hard to overstate the opportunities that it will give the state if we reinvest in higher education equitably and in you know a targeted way. And I think that this budget, we're starting to see that reinvestment. And so, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see, but we need to, I think, keep our foot on the gas pedal to make sure that we're continuing to invest in our colleges, universities, and our students. We've seen unique disinvestment in our colleges and universities over the last 20 years. And now we're seeing this reinvestment. And I think it's exciting to see. Right. The headline is we, don't stop now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, we have to continue to lower costs to students and to adequately fund universities so that they can serve students. So yes, don't stop now, I think is the, the message. That's the message. All right. Now it's time for my conversation with Chicago teacher and author Jay Rehack. The first novel that we actually wrote was back in 2014, and it really was, honestly, the first crowdsourced high school novel ever published. I know because we looked it up, and uh, you can Google it. It's where the first ones to do it. Before then, I was doing books. I was doing, uh, back in 2005, I was making, producing grammar books, you know, getting them published through uh, Lulu.com. Now I use uh, KDP and Amazon and all that, but... Back in the day, we were putting together books that way. But the first time we did a novel was back in 2014. It was called 30 Days to Empathy, and it wound up being the Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year, which was very nice for us. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good book. And I, I you guys you know, have... followed up with a number of other ones with the students. What are you at right now? How many novels have you guys put out? Fourteen. Fourteen. Is there anything? I actually, uh, real fast, I want yeah, to work please. on a novel while we're done on uh, – like positive zombies. I'm going to be writing a book, hopefully with my students while we're out, a novel where we're going to have like uh, zombies, you know, getting a virus, but they turn into good people and you know, whatever. It's, it's my latest idea and uh, based on the coronavirus thing. But That's right. Positivity zombies. Right. I, right. Positive. Right. Exactly. Because they, I don't want them to be depressed, you know. Yeah. But, you know, we've done it a, a number of times and it's, you know, it's it's a great exercise. The kids get a chance to uh, be published, but also um, collaborate, which I think is the most important part of the 21st century. Is you got to be able to collaborate. 
you can do that, I think you can survive. And if you can't, I think you're doomed. That's that's my my hypothesis anyway. Yeah, and you know, I was definitely I had actually re- I watched the uh, the TED talk that you gave that was oh. that was sort of about uh, 30 days of empathy and, and all that stuff. And so I'm curious, how many about how many kids per class is it like around 30 or so typically that contribute to one of the novels? Yes, usually 30. That's about right. Yeah, it, it's it, that's whatever my class size is. And what we try to do, Peter, is we try to make sure everybody does it. So back in the day when I first did the first book, 30 Days to Empathy, you know, I think I told you that was, or you may have seen in the TED Talk, but it was about a very arrogant suburban uh, white boy, actually, who goes to Chicago and thinks that he's smarter than everybody else, but then he magically lives one day in the life of each of his, of his, of his classmates. Right. I and, think that you had mentioned that. finds out that he's not as smart as he thought he was. But Yeah. But I had one kid who did not write it. And we, we gave everybody, it was about a three-month project to, to put it together, and he hadn't met the deadline. I wanted to include everybody. And finally he did it, and it wound up being one of the best chapters in the book. And then when we won an award, he came out and read the chapter. It was just a beautiful thing. And I just, I just remember thinking, this guy is aggravating me because he's taking so long. But when he finally got it out, it was it was profoundly beautiful. So, sort of a lesson to me that you know, if I could just be patient, some of these kids will come through. A lot of kids will come through. You know. You remember what his chapter was about? Oh yeah, very much. He was he was a math genius, but he he loved to. Uh, or he didn't love to, but he was a graffiti uh, specialist, and he was also uh, a Polish immigrant. His father and mother were very hard on him, et cetera, and he tells us sort of harrowing tale of going into some of the bowels of uh, Chicago and, and tagging you know, old factories, et cetera. But in, in, the, in the telling of it, he was explaining some of his math, you know, life, and, you know, he was living this double life because I certainly didn't know any of that. You know, I thought he was just, I just had no idea what he was. He was like tutoring by day and also tagging by night, and, you know, and living this very uh, difficult life with his folks and, uh, you know, economic stress. It was, it was, it was very powerful. And I know that in the TED talk, you mentioned that when you started that Thirty Days of Empathy project, you kind of thought that they were going to approach it and try to make it funny, right? Like a Freaky yes. Friday type of story. Yes. And that is not the direction that it went in. Yes, I was so happy, and I actually well, happy is one thing, but I was also scared out of my mind when I read some of these chapters, and I would ask these kids, "Is this really a day of your life?" I mean, it wasn't, you know, necessarily a typical day, but the girl in my back of my class who slept, and it turned out she was basically living in a drug den and working at a subway at night to pay rent and, you know, trying to keep guys from jumping on her, you know, in the middle of the night. And I was like, no wonder you sleep in my class. You know, you're exhausted from, from the life you're living, you know. But it was a true story, she told me. And, you know, she had gotten to counseling and everything else. But I'm just saying, is some of these kids tell these stories, and you're like, Holy smokes! I can't believe you're even you even showed up to class today. I mean, that, I started just admiring people for you know showing up, and I think that's an important thing for teachers to realize. You don't know what these kids have to do to get to school. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a way to to get to know the people in your class and and to build empathy. And and when I was looking at the especially with Thirty Days of Empathy and, and redoing some other research, and I, I saw the podcast that you have, the, the the Tell Me What Happened podcast. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I, I clicked on the the, just the most recent one, and literally in the first thirty seconds, you were talking about how because the the that is about like uh, people talking about 
their childhood trauma and kind of how yes. it affects and how it impacted who they are, right? Yes. And and one of the things that you said in there was about how basically like, you know, you feel like you've suffered some childhood trauma, sure, and, and that it's, you know, kind of helped shape who you are. And then you said, and hopefully that makes me more empathetic than I otherwise yes. would be. And I that I immediately tied back to the 30 Days of Empathy. And then on your Twitter bio, there's something about empathy too. So that is really like the thesis statement for you, right? That is kind of uh, something that's that's a phrase that you use a lot in your life is, is empathy. That's something very important to you. Thank you, Barry. I agree with you 100%. I've decided that that is my like... Uh um, motto or something my, like that. Yeah, life life mission. You know, what I mean, it's like trying to get people to um, be more empathetic. And I include myself in that, by the way. It's not like I think I'm the most empathetic person. I'm just trying all the time. Cause every once in a while, I get really aggravated with a kid, and then I find out something that some backstory, and I'm like, oh man, you know, what a little, I just I just get, you know ripped into the kid for something, you know, being late or something. I don't know what, and then I realize, you know, I can't even believe what this. Them, you know, so it, it's on me to become more empathetic. But I think that is my life mission: is finding what people, you know, you know, finding people's backstories, hearing about that from your students and other people, and and what they're going through in their lives. Is that kind of uh, the crux of why you started that that podcast too? Absolutely. I think that if we tell each other stories, if you know, if, if I had the time or you had the the time to tell me your one of your childhood experiences, I would forever um know you better and i would have a deeper understanding of who you are just based on that one story that is my hypothesis is that you tell me one one profound story from your childhood and then i will never ever look at you the same way and i will have you know more respect for you but also i'll have a deeper understanding of who you are that's that's my deep belief yeah, there's, and there's something, instead of it just being any story from your life, it being specific to your childhood, I feel like, adds an extra element of, of vulnerability to it, right? Like like all of childhood has? Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, we read, we read in my class, we read Black Boy by Richard Wright, and that's basically, you know, his childhood stories and his adult stories, and you know, we read various books, and almost all the books that we read, the author is telling us some childhood experience that uh, impacts them. You know, I just finished with the students. I am not your perfect Mexican daughter. And uh, it's, you know, 15-year-old girl going through quite a bit. And um, when people ask Erica Sanchez, the author, whether, it, you know, it's a true story or not, she says, well, some of it is, but not all of it. And I understand that. You know, I mean, we all fictionalize our lives to a certain extent, but but when you tell some honest story about yourself as best you can, it's very moving. It's, there's, no, there's no way around it. You know, when we're, we're having this conversation and touching a lot about childhood trauma and stories from our childhood, and, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast that I do is that I feel like educators have a very specific kind of impact on people's lives in that we all kind of have, unlike almost any other profession, we all kind of have stories or people, you know, teachers from our childhood or stories about teachers from our childhood that really made some sort of significant impact on us, whether it be elementary school, middle school, high school, college, whatever. We all kind yes. of have that experience. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you as someone that's been in education for, you know, you know, you're just getting into education after 30 years, right? <laughs> still getting <laughs> still getting the lay of the land. Right. I'm, I'm curious, what was it? Do you remember if there was a person for you that inspired you to get into education for this to be something that you wanted to pursue in your life or, or how did that happen? 
Well, let me, let me tell you very quickly a, a very brief story that I tell my students at the beginning of the year, which is my father was a computer programmer, and my mother was an English teacher, an mm. eighth-grade English teacher. And when, when I graduated from college, I had planned to be a writer, and I told my mother and my father, I sat them down, I said, you're both very nice people, but I don't want to be anything like you at all. And then I went off for nine years, and I worked in L.A. and New York and Philadelphia, and I did a lot of different things. And one day I came back. I was in Chicago, and I was working at a, volunteering at a homeless shelter, and this woman who was running it was working at a local grammar school, and she said, J.J., we need you to become a, uh, we need you to teach starting Monday. Our teacher quit on Friday, and we need you for Monday. You didn't need a license back then. I said, well, what do you want me to teach? And she said, well, we'd like you to teach English and computers to kids. So at the age of 30, I became my mother and my father, despite my best intentions. That's just how life tends to happen, right? As, as, as much as you try I, to outrun it. <laughs> I tried to outrun it, man, but I just couldn't do it. I was I did 25 different other things. So you're, you're telling me, Jay, that you can't outrun your childhood? Yeah, I couldn't outrun it. You're right. I couldn't. I couldn't, but I met a lot of good teachers along the way, too, that were inspirational, and, uh, you know, I found it powerful. And so, even though your mother was a teacher, an English teacher, that wasn't something that growing up for you, you are like, I absolutely have to follow in her footsteps, because actually, my mother and my stepmother, both also teachers as well, so I, I have a oh, similar wow. experience, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, I tried not to be my mother and my father. You know, and yeah. I, I, my, my plan when I was young was I was going to go to law school and then I was going to become a senator and then I was going to become president of the United States and then I was going to play third base for the White Sox. That was my basic plan. Well, so, Jay, I mean, uh, you could still be president, you know. I mean, <laughs> you're, you'd be pretty young for, for presidents these days, right? These days. <laughs> yeah, I think those days are, you know, the po- political days are gone. But, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, if you asked me at 14 what I was going to do, that was the plan. I, I was then, definitely with you in terms of third base for the White Sox. I think I had a, I had a similar ambition, yeah. In those, did you say nine years that you spent in different places yeah. working, were you doing writing then? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I've been writing my whole life, uh, but I've been, um, at the time, and I would say phenomenally unsuccessful. I went to New York I, to be a writer. I, I actually went to law school briefly until they threw me out. Yeah. I went to lectures law school. They threw me out for laughing too hard, I always say. But anyway, <laughs> I moved up to New York City, and I always say I was I was a, a waiter and not a writer. I was writing, but I wasn't making any money at it. And I always said I went to New York, and I was just one letter off because I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to be in a waiter. So <laughs> well, Jay, like I like you said, if you're going to be unsuccessful, you might as well do it phenomenally. Yeah, 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 phenomenal, unbelievable. I mean, I I was doing actually. I was fortunate. I met my wife. I was writing video for uh, in New York City in Manhattan. There it was uh, there, I don't think it still exists, but there was public access channel D. And I was writing a weekly comedy show, and uh, my wife auditioned for it. Having me just someone off the street auditioned for it, I fell in love with her right away. We didn't get married for a number of years, but um, you know it was love at first sight for me. And so, even though I never really made a living as a writer uh, in New York City, um, I did get you know my my beautiful wife out of it so it's worked out for me jay i also saw that you you've written other books on your own not outside of the 
the, the class sourced ones. And so you've got yes. some, some other novels that you've written. And do you want to talk a little bit about the other stuff that uh, I know this, the sideline series, right? Thank you so much for that, Peter. Yeah, I really course. appreciate it because my sideline book series is absolutely my passion these days. I mean, beyond the, I do the crowdsource with the kids, but my sideline book series is about an 11 year old entrepreneur. Her parents are uh, basically irresponsible human beings who drink too much and do other things and do criminal acts, et cetera. And so they forget about her more, more or less just to feed herself. Uh, and so she winds up becoming a secret entrepreneur where she winds up starting many, many businesses and, uh, you know, lemonade stand first, but gets into eBay and everything else. And before you know it, she's a millionaire, but she can't tell anybody except uh, her 12-year-old friends that she's working with, basically, and a couple of adults. Because if she tells her parents, they'll spend it or shut it down. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a whole book series. That only, there's only been two of them out so far. Both of them are available on Amazon and Audible. The third book's coming out in June. I've, I've finished it. I'm just having it edited now. Yeah. And it's a five book series, uh, but I'm only I'm finishing. I again, book three is done, but I just have to uh, get it cleaned up. Actually, this coronavirus may expedite things because my editors will have some more time. But it's it's a wonderful series that uh, my. Students and others have told me that they like, young people have told me they like. I'm trying to teach financial literacy with it because one of the other things that I'm passionate about is that young people, unfortunately, and I work with the best and the brightest in Chicago, but they don't know anything about money. It's astounding how little people understand about basically compound interest as an example. But they, you know, kids tell me that come out of school with massive college debt and they don't understand that how hard it is to pay that back well yeah i mean i it's it's my experience that i think that money is probably the most taboo thing for people to talk about i think even more so than you know sex politics and religion i think it's money and i think especially because in my experience i think the less money that you have the more the less apt you are to want to talk about money well said i think you're 100 percent on that too peter and, and unfortunately though those discussions should be being had, I think, at the grade school and the high school level, not, you know, accumulation of wealth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how to deal with money. And I'm not even just talking with people who say, well, just put it in the bank account. That's not really teaching anything because, you know, bank accounts give you very low interest, et cetera. I mean, it, it does, that's not really the game. You know, it's, it's far more complicated and interesting than that, you know, but these kids don't get taught anything. Yeah, Jay, and, and I, I wanted to ask, too, about uh, your writing process for you. I mean, uh, are you someone that is uh, all about, you know, do you schedule a certain time? You know, you know, it's it's 7 o'clock, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do two hours worth of writing, or is it a little more free form of just whenever you feel inspired to write, or what do you like as a writer in that way? What's your process like? Um, well, Peter, I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm a little bit of an anarchist, Oh, and, do and tell. So what I mean by that is is that I have no schedule ever, almost, and uh, so uh, this it looks like we're going to be um, we're going to be off for let's just say a month right now, yeah. uh, you know, and it may be longer. But I can tell you that I will be writing. I'll be working on a novel while this entire time. But when at what hour I don't actually know. But I do know that my best writing does happen in the morning. Mm. So tomorrow morning, my plan would be to wake up and start writing something, but I don't know what it's going to be yet. I mean, it's going to be 
I have three or four different projects that are up, and it'll be just like whatever one hits me. It's 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 bizarre, but I I wake up in the middle of the night and I gotta write that down. I gotta go start writing it, and then my wife will say, "What were you doing?" And I said, "Just writing this new idea I had." And she said, well, "What about the other idea?" I said, "I don't know what happened, but I'm on this one now." So what happens is I just write the one that I feel most passionate about. And uh, I told my daughter, I, I texted my daughter uh, yesterday, I said, um, I'm writing a book called In the Fullness of Time. And she called me today and said, what it's about? And I said, I can't wait to find out. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> you <laughs> know what? Like, I am a sucker for a great title. And yeah. sometimes that's enough. Right. That's it. And so I'm like, I got to figure out what it is. But I think it's, you know, I think it's apocalyptic you know, whatever, but everything works out fine. That's all I got right now. But I'll just start <laughs> writing it and then it will it it will come. You know, if you I believe in my heart I, I actually I'm more of a playwright than I am a novelist or maybe not, but I've written and produced my plays have been produced a lot more successfully than people have read my, my books. But when I start writing the plays down or the books, I think of Alice Walker who when she wrote The Color Purple, at the end of it, she said, I'd like to thank the characters for coming. And what she meant was that she didn't know what was going to happen next. And she just, like, listened to her characters, and then her characters told her, and she just was the transcriber. And that's the way I feel, too. I was just thinking about this, and I'm trying to remember the guys. Oh, uh, Harlan Ellison, the... The sci-fi, famous sci-fi writer who's, you know, Star Trek and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah, I, there's always a quote that I think about when I think about what you just said, which is that people used to come up to him at conventions and on the street, and they would ask him, Harlan, where do you get your ideas at? And he would always say, Schenectady. And so that's the, that's the only way you could say it. I have no idea where they come from. Just Schenectady, <laughs> New York is where they come from. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea either. You know, I'll tell you one very funny story. I wrote this, uh, I wrote this, play, this children's play. Um, many years ago, it was a musical. My wife read the music. I wrote the book. But my daughter was five years old, and I had this idea of two ducks who couldn't get onto the uh, ark because they Noah was doing it alphabetically. And by the time they got to realize that what was happening, Noah was already on the letter E, so they couldn't get on. They had to they had to take their way on. They had to come up with new new identities, etc. But anyway, I started writing this play. And my five-year-old comes up to me with her other, with her five-year-old friend, and she goes, "What are you doing, Dad?" I said, "I'm writing Noah's Ark children's musical." She said, "What's it about?" And I told her, and she said, "How far are you?" I said, "I'm five pages into it." She goes, "Well, what happens next?" I said, "I don't know." And they said, "Well, we'll come back in ten minutes." So they came back in ten minutes, and I wrote ten minutes more, and then I said, "Well, what happens next?" I said, "I don't know." They go, "Okay, we'll be back in ten minutes," and they just kept coming back, <laughs> like it was just assumed that I would just write the whole story that day, and I did. But it was it was so funny, these little girls telling me what happens next. And I said, I don't know. And they go, okay, Dad, we'll be back in 10 minutes. And so that's how I wrote the play. And it was just so funny because I was just listening to the characters talk to me. I didn't really change a word afterwards. It just, the story came to me out of a pressure cooker, I guess, or whatever. But anyway, that's just, that's just my process. I really don't know. I mean, tomorrow I don't know what I'm writing. <laughs> I know it's in the fullness of time, and I don't know what's going to happen. All right, well, we'll get back to you in 10 minutes and see if you have any developments. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Jay, you've been in education for, like you said, over 30 years, and this is something I like to ask a lot of people that are either, um, I guess, ask any, all the, most of my guests, which is in the, that amount of time, what is what you can think of as, it doesn't have to be the greatest, but what is a great lesson that you've learned about education? 
first of all, I mean, in terms of the um, various, the Internet, et cetera, that's really exploding, et cetera. But what I've learned about education more than anything else is, is that, and generally is, is that you have to be going with the sense of humility and not with the sense of arrogant understanding. Every time I think I understand somebody, I just realize there's so much more backstory to the kid or the student that I don't know. And the more backstory I do know, the more I generally respect the, the student. You know, kids that I find that are non-motivated, you just got to figure out what is it that makes them tick. And if you can, if you can make, you can figure that out. You can help them. And if you don't. You think you've been a failure, and then a kid comes back to you 10 years later and said, hey, the one thing you said to me changed my life. And you're like, I don't even remember saying that, man. You know, I mean, everything I tried to do, I thought you didn't hear anything. So what you're telling me, Jay, is that we're back to empathy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's perfect. It's synchronicity. Right. We've, we've made it back. <laughs> I think you're right. Yes. And then what would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned about writing? Um, you know, I think the greatest thing about writing, and, I, and I, I think that I try to teach it to my students, is that it's cathartic to write. Just the do it itself is, is, is a healing. And also the idea, the genuine idea that everything you write has to be this, akin to a biblical text is a mistake. The process itself is very, very healing to write. It helps me very much, but I also know that um, if I get quiet, the story will come to me, the, student, the characters will come to me, they'll tell me what they want to tell me. It's, it's, it's very much about the stillness. You know, you just sit there and listen to these characters talking to you. And it's, I think, about sort of listening to other human beings, too. You know, I mean, I'm talking too much now, but the more I listen to you, the better understanding I have of who you are. Yeah. I think the characters are all out there waiting to be read. And I actually wrote a play, a very bad play, about a guy whose characters we didn't finish sort of gang up on him and are very aggravated with him. That you know, why didn't you finish me? And it's like, I don't know, I, I, I abandoned you. I'm sorry. I think that's a great segue, Jay, because one of the last things that I wanted to ask you right now is that I had saw, too, that you were the author of 10 short plays to read before you die, and I want you to give me at least one to two of them that we need to read while we're all working from home, while we're all in self, you know, our, our social distancing and in quarantine. Can you give us, like, two short plays that we should read while we're, while we're doing that, while we're all at home? Thank you so much again for your interest, man. But uh, I would love you to read uh, The End of a Perfect Game. It's about a uh, professional pitcher who's one pitch away from throwing a perfect game in the World Series, and he decides at that moment that he's not sure that, that being a pitcher is what he wants to do for a living. And he goes through this existential crisis, and uh, he's got to get talked out of it. Whether or not he's going to throw the last pitch or not, it's a, it's a very funny story, and it's been performed all over the world. And I, I love that play. It, 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 if you read that play, you'll you'll understand me is all I can say. Well, I'm a, I don't know. If, Jay, I am a huge baseball fan, and so to keep with the baseball analogies, you could not have picked anything more in my wheelhouse. That's perfect. Oh, that's so great. you got to read that play. I've got to. I'm going to send you a copy. If you send me your address, I'll send you a copy. You don't have to buy it. That sounds yeah. great. Thank you so much, Jay. Well, well, that was all that I, that was all that I had for you. And uh, so... We can expect uh, over the next couple months or, or so, you said you've got your next uh, sideline book that's going to be coming out? Yes. Let and, me just, let me just. I, I, I know we're done, but I just would say the other book, that, or the other play that um, 
Oh, yeah, go ahead. Because there were two, and I just want to – I don't want your audience to be, like, aggravated that I didn't give you two. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one is probably this uh, thing called Dr. J's Magic Spray, and uh, it's about a guy who's a carnival barker who sells a spray that makes you tell the truth about how you feel about relationships, and it's pretty funny play, and that also has been done all over the world. And, uh, and I think people would appreciate that one um, and get a deeper understanding of me a little bit too. But anyway, yeah, thank you. I will definitely um, continue with my sideline series. Good news. Since the time that we recorded that conversation, Jay has continued on with his Sideline series. The third book in that series was published last year. It's called Silent Partners. You can check it out wherever you get books. And again, thank you so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we got great guests like Jay. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Wherever you're in the podcast, you can subscribe, leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. It really does help get us more perspectives on the show. You can also subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the amazing music you hear every episode. Thank you to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo. I've been your host, Peter Medlin. And again, a reminder, we'll be back in just one week with a brand new episode of Teacher's Lounge. We'll see you then.